Welcome to It's a Good Life, the podcast for entrepreneurs, where it's all about growing yourself and your business. Here's your host, founder of America's largest business coaching company, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Lisa Bodell, and Lisa believes in the power of simplification. I read her book, Kill the Company, a few years ago. Absolutely fantastic. She is the founder and CEO of FutureThink and a well-known speaker. In fact, we are very honored that Lisa is going to be speaking at our leadership conference in Austin, Texas, September 8th and 9th. So to all of you who are registered, you're going to get a little taste of what's to come. She is phenomenal. And she's here to talk about her newest book today. I love this. It's called Why Simple Wins. This is a fabulous book. It's about escape the complexity trap and get to work on what matters. And we're all about that. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. I love the energy. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a great time together today. And again, really excited to have you come and bless our audience in September. Let's jump right into the heart of the matter here. What is simple? What's the definition of it? And why does it matter to a business owner? Well, simple is about how can we do things not just more effectively, but be able to focus on what's really valuable, right? So this isn't just a productivity exercise. I think it's very easy to be productive and people create processes to do that all the time. But how can we actually be more focused by getting rid of things versus just focusing on doing more? So, you know, the reason that we like to have people focus on simplicity is because it makes them focus on what matters the most. And that's what simplicity really means focusing on what matters the most. You know, it's interesting in the coaching side of our world, when we first start with people, they come to us and they're kind of almost bracing for impact Yeah, because they're ready for all the tasks (laughs) and all the activities we're going to dump on top of them. And the first thing we do is we find out everything they're doing. And the very first thing we do is start taking away the least valuable stuff. And all of a sudden, the clutter starts to clear. I think overwhelm is the number one emotion we experience in trying to help people to improve their performance. I agree. Obviously, in companies and organizations, it's bigger. You know, there's so many myths about simplicity. I agree. How do you cut through all this stuff and understand how it's really so profound? Well, I, you know, I, I feel the same way. It's like when I talk, I feel like half the time I'm giving advice on simplification. The other thing is therapy. I mean, I feel like people literally are, are coming to you to say like, help. And I just want to spew it out about all the problems. And because we've been taught um, there's a few myths, right, that create this, which is that we are only valuable if we are doing more, not less. And so the idea is the more I do, the busier I am, the valuable, more valuable I am. And that's actually not true. So when you actually tell people, what do you wish you were doing? It's usually not what they're spending their time doing. And then when you say, what are you doing? Is it valuable? They say no. So the idea of subtraction being something that is important at work is um One, very uh, enlightening for people. It almost makes them have that collective, oh, they just let their shoulders go down. They feel so much better. Um, But it's actually changing people's mindset to make that stick, right? So it's very easy for us to say, I want to get rid of stuff, but then actually doing it is harder for people than they think because they, they want to be busy. Yeah. And I think we find our identity in it a little bit. You know, I mean, I'll speak personally, right? I'm the Classic Irish immigrant came with 92 bucks in his wallet, you know, rags to riches. <laughs> Paddy made good story. You're in New York. You're surrounded by thousands of them. And so I'm the, for years, I'm first one in the building, last one out, you know, that type of guy. And so I, I'm chairman of the board. I do events. I have a lot of things going on. 
and I started this podcast. And so we bring in this brilliant team and they're helping us and the podcast has grown exponentially and it became one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Then they go, well, let's do two episodes a week. So now I'm doing 104 podcasts a year. I've got all my events. I've got all this, got all that. And I found myself just fried out. Let's do more. And something I really loved doing all of a sudden was just a grind. And I came to the team and I said, look, we might lose people. We might lose listenership. We might lose this. Here's what I'd rather do. I'd rather do one great episode and where I either do original content or get a great interview. I'd rather do one a week and let the chips fall where they may. Now, I will tell you, and maybe you can coach me up through this because I felt like I'm letting the team down. The boss, oh, is Brian getting ready to retire? Yeah, These are course. some of the questions that came up. What's his deal? Has he lost his edge or whatever else? Because I was always the grinder. And I had to go through all this personally. I felt like I was letting the team down. But I said, I have to do this. I didn't feel good about the quality and I didn't feel good about the lifestyle. And so I made the commitment. Well, guess what? The audience has tripled since I went to one of week. It turns out nobody was keeping up with two episodes a week. And we were bombarding people. Well, I mean, that's you hear the same thing right now with consumers. It's like they are just paralyzed by choice. Like more is not better. So I think there's something about that, especially with entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, that there's this myth, right, that more is better. And that's not true for us as a business because we lose focus. And we um, but I think the reason people fall into that trap, especially as entrepreneurs, is because they're spreading their bets. So, right, you started out with a really good, simple idea, but then now there's more opportunity. And if I don't take a hold of this, I might miss out. So I better try everything. And then you're just spinning the plates. You're juggling the balls and you have to come back to center. I almost look at it with the entrepreneurs. It's like a diamond, right? It starts out focused. It goes big. And then they eventually have to come back once they've kind of spread their wings to what really matters. What is seriously making money versus being just big? And so that's where that mindset shift happens, which is it's not about doing more. It's about doing valuable. And yes, and and I think it's not just about doing. It's also about undoing. Like we really coach um, big organizations and entrepreneurs. Like how much time do you spend looking at not just what more can you do, but what can you stop doing and building that into people's cultures, like into your strategic planning. Um, into your thinking, what can we stop doing? What can we get rid of is a very healthy thing to do. So you make space for the good things to happen. And, and you know, again, I decent sized company, it's very hard to stop something. Well, it, it's hard to stop things, but also you know what it is? It's the same thing with your teams. You know how teams will tell you, um, and this will appeal to your audience, I think that have teams that are always saying, God, I wish I had more time to do important things. But then when you give them, when they say like, well, what would you like to stop doing? Okay, I give you permission to stop doing those things. They get hesitant because they're like, well, that is very important. Oh, I'm not sure we can really stop that. It's sometimes you have to mandate the stopping to happen because people are actually afraid to let go. Well, what if it doesn't work? What if, if it doesn't change? So I think there's a lot of um, habits that have to be changed. And the boss actually has to reinforce the stopping um, and set the example for people to follow. It brings up a story for me. So one of my first assistants, when I first started my real estate business decades ago, she was a pack rat. In her oh, house, God. she was a pack rat. Oh, in her God. life, she was a pack rat. In her car, she was a pack rat. And so she came to the office, and next thing, the office is a pack rat. And I'm, I'm not, not that either. guy. <laughs> so I'm asking the questions. What's going on? What's going on? Well, her, why was she a pack rat? Her fear was that one day she was going to throw something out that was needed, okay. that was valuable. So you just hit the nail on the head of something, which is when people say, what causes complexity? How does it happen? The excuses people will tell you is, well, um, either 
things are regulated. It's the company. It's the rules. It's what it really is. It comes down to fear. The number one thing that makes people complex is fear, fear of missing out, fear of being fired, um, fear of, I, I don't know, being held accountable. If you can help not just reduce the friction as a boss, that's about getting rid of unnecessary, but uh, reduce the fear. That's what's going to make simplicity stick. Here's how I handled it. I put a bonus program in place. And I said, if you throw something out that we need, there's a restaurant downtown San Diego called Mr. A's. I said, you and your husband, and he was, her husband was a notorious cheapskate, so you've never taken her anywhere nice. <laughs> and I go, you throw something out we need. I said, you guys, dinner for two at Mr. A's. Oh, perfect. I go, if you throw something out twice that we need, I said, I'm going to get you a weekend at the Ritz-Carlton in Laguna Beach. And I was coming up with a third one. Well, she starts throwing stuff out left, right, and center. I'm like, but see, that's what you just did was really interesting is you gave her an incentive to get to what matters. And so what happens with a lot of people when they approach simplicity with their teams, this is interesting, is they don't position it correctly. They tell people, we just want you to be more efficient. And what that says to people is, I want you to do the work of two people. I want you to make me more money. And this is not, it's not about just productivity, right? People are People can be very productive. Um, it's about being able to do focus on more meaningful things. And when they hear that, then they're like, well, thank you. I would be happy to be able to take time back for me and you to do more valuable things. And so it, it's a real positioning thing for people because they, they're skeptical. Well, I, I love you. Keep saying it over and over again. And people are going to read your book, Why Simple Wins. They're going to hear value <laughs> and valuable over and over again. And it's so essential because I think when people do valuable things, they feel valued themselves. They do. And this is what's interesting about simplicity. You're making me a couple things on value is, first of all, the reason people, the reason the boss typically does simplicity, right? There are people that are doing this all over the place right now. Netflix has a simplicity effort. Google has it. Pfizer has it. Everyone, you know, Merck, has, everyone has it is because they do save time and money, right? So if you've got a, if you've got a company of, this isn't this audience, but 10,000 people, they work 2,000 hours a year. That's 20 million hours that they've got at work. You say 5% of that, that's a million hours they can put towards something better. That's a million hours. Okay, so that's interesting. There's financial reasons for it. But the reason you do it now, especially for these entrepreneurs listening in small businesses, is that um, it's a cultural issue. Like if you get the work right, you get the culture right. And it's ethical. People stay at jobs where they feel that their time is valued. So you're going to be able to retain your talent and steal talent from other places if you have a simplified work environment because they're doing valuable work. But Brian, here's the catch, which is you probably do a very good job of this, but I bet people listening, how many of them have actually defined for their teams what valuable work is? They probably think they have, but I bet they haven't. Like you get everyone in a room and say, define what valuable work is. I bet you get 20 different definitions. Right. And I, I think also as a leader, we can often be the place where, especially if I have a small company, you know, you're the chief dog and bottle washer and everything can end up at your plate. So you got to lead by <laughs> example. And if, if you can't be simple, if you can't work on valuable things, then nobody else has a chance. Okay. So here's a good story. So Albert, who's the CEO of Pfizer little bit bigger company than mine. Uh, he actually was in charge of simplicity. 
And he was the chief simplification officer before he became CEO. This was just before COVID. I mean, talk about a guy who's been a little busy. Um, but the reason they were successful, by the way, with COVID, uh, with the vaccines is because they were so simplified. So he actually told people, he said, you guys keep telling me you're drowning in meetings. I thereby deem everyone, every employee can say no to meetings. What a great guy, right? Well, guess what? A month later, everyone was still drowning in meetings. And he was a little pissed off. And he asked his chief of staff, what's going on? You know, here I said, and uh, he said, to be honest, you still go to every meeting until he changed. Everyone was nervous, right? So we, we say things, but we don't do things. And so until we do it, like Brian, until you do it, right? Nobody, for sure. nobody's going to sure. change. Or is it a trap? <laughs> well, fear. All right. So it comes back fear. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. So in your book, you talk about when asked, you know, people are asked the question, how are you doing? They say good. <laughs> but the default answer is busy. Busy. Why has busy become this badge of honor? Why is it something that also people hide behind? It's so easy for to be busy, isn't it? Right. So I, it's be easy to look busy. You're just attending meetings. You're doing stuff busy. Because if I'm busy, right, I'll be included in things. Um, I, I take up my time. The problem is, is that I think people are really scared. It's easy to get busy with the tactical stuff to execute. But then when you get rid of the unnecessary tactical stuff and you have to actually start managing or thinking or leading, well, that's when actually you get a little bit more exposed, right? The the, the thing about simplicity that makes people nervous is it's, it makes things very transparent. And so we can hide behind busy. I was talking with... um. Voss, who's the CEO of Novartis, and he said, you know, I'm trying to get people to be unbossed. Unbossed means um, you can make your own decisions. And what that allowed them to do is to be unbusy. And what's interesting is he goes, I'm really ready for people to now be uncomfortable because they're not going to know what to do with their time. So I think it's, it, this is what's hard for people is they say, I wish I had more time. I had more time to think. And then when they get it, they don't know what to do with it because they're not used to it. They feel uncomfortable because you're supposed to be busy. If I'm not included in the meeting, I have FOMO. I'm not busy. So it, the, the leader has to start changing that culture to, I'll give you an example like at Accenture right now, it's a badge of honor to be uninvited to a meeting because your time, <laughs> right? So now it's almost like the people that are at the meeting are kind of like the losers because, well, they got nothing better to do, right? So it's it's about reversing the psychology, right? Wow. Yeah, I, I was talking to a leader there and he's like, it's great because now everyone's like, oh, you have to go to that meeting? You must not be very busy. Turn it around, turn it around. It's good, yeah. I find, and I am a devotee of simplicity. And yeah. I've been fighting for this my whole life, my working life. And when I found your content, I was like, hang on a second here. And it really resonates with me at a deep level. And here's why. One of the demands of the type of business I built is, yes, I got to do this chairman of the board, oversee the company deal. But the work I do to contribute to the company, it demands a tremendous amount of creativity. Yes. I'm inventing okay. events, content. And for me, I've worked like the Dickens to create simplicity in my business and life to be creative. And if I don't have simplicity, I have zero creativity. Zero. Okay. So this is such a huge thing. And I read it in the book and I was like, ding, 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 ding. Love for you to talk about that. So thank you. That is, you really just hit the nail on the head, which is, you know, I said that this isn't just about productivity. The reason you need to have simplicity is because simplicity is the front end of innovation. It creates the space 
for thinking and creativity to happen. So the reason why innovation isn't working right now at a lot of companies is because when people hear be innovative, they're like, well, I don't have time to think. I can't take on more. So the, the first step when you innovate isn't about ideas. The first step when you innovate is getting rid of. It's creating the space for the thinking, to, the mental space to happen. So I think really innovative companies, like look at Netflix and Google, who literally, I mean, these are incredibly innovative organizations, but they have simplicity efforts because they've become too busy to think. And they depend on it. Like you, right? You have been very successful because you made the time for creative thinking to happen. But that that takes someone who is strong and can con control their time. A lot of people that are on lower levels, they don't feel like they have the control of their time. So we have to help them. Well, the most important person in Buffini and Company is my assistant, Jeanette Perez. We meet every <laughs> day on our schedule. We have a big meeting on Mondays and we have some kind of little meeting every single day. And it is about blocking and tackling the schedule. And the reason being, well, we need this answer. We need this. Can it just this, just that? When I do all of that, there is no time to think. There's no time to create. And one of the things, the reason I think this is so much more powerful and why this book, I really believe, is going to be a huge hit for you is one of the dynamics that I've seen, and I'm part of a networking group of employers, and we employ thousands of people between us, pre-COVID and post-COVID, collaboration and creativity have hit rock bottom. And Zoom calls, you know, Zoom has actually, just so you know, work from home. There's some real benefits to it. There's some real work. We have a bunch of buildings here. We're probably three days a week in the office, two days home. There's a lot of things you can get done. But when we're locked in right here, these Zooms, they're very intense meetings. And they're on to the next and on to the next. And I would just say, but the collaboration and the creativity is at the all-time low. And I believe people are going to have to make real commitments to this simplicity and to their calendar in order to create space to think and to be creative. So a lot of organizations are, 100% agree, a lot of organizations now are, and I agree with it, mandating thinking time. Like, how do you create the space for the deep work to happen? And here's why. Because when I ask people, um, when and where do you do your best thinking? So think about this, Brian. Like, so when and where do you do your best thinking? What would you say? Walking on the beach in San Diego. Walking on the Okay, well, lucky you. Yeah, showing off. You're showing Sorry. off. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I couldn't say that in New York. That'd be weird. Uh, so for me, it's I'm walking my dog. I'm on an airplane, right? So when I ask this all over the world, I say, when and where do you do your best thinking? The number one things are, you know, in the shower, on a walk, you know, driving my car. You know what? It's never in the office. At work. Yeah. In the office ever, never, ever. So, but what that makes you realize is a few things. We do our best thinking when we're alone and when it's quiet. So we, we get our best ideas when we are alone, but we build our best ideas when we are together. And the problem is, is that we do not give enough time to get our best ideas. We just say, let's have a Zoom call. Well, no one's had time to think. And then they come up with the same crappy ideas. So we need, we must create space to think so we can build our best ideas together. Zoom calls are not good brainstorms. We need thinking time. So I, I think that's where simplicity comes in. We got to create the space to happen. We get our best ideas when we're alone and quiet and we build our best ideas when we're together. You know, you can't have community without proximity. Nice. And that's why you have to get together. And so, you know, it's interesting. I do come to the office. Like I was here at the office yesterday because Monday is a day when it's quiet around here. That's, That's right. one of the days that people don't come in. That's right. So I come into the office when no one's here. 
And it's a nice place. It's a really nice setup <laughs> by myself. <laughs> exactly. And that's what people want. Like they just want the space to think. Cause they, what we don't is we don't have protection on our time. We don't, it's almost like people feel like they're not allowed to have boundaries on their time. And it's, we have to start to realize like time is, it's a non-renewable resource. We will never get it back. And so how are we going to put our boundaries around our time? And part of that is learning to say, uh, learning to say no. And for those that can't say no, learning to say yes, if. Like, yes, I will do that if, right? And uh, you're, you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with that. But we, what we forget as the bosses is I have, con- well, relatively control over my calendar. Most people don't. They, they spend their days. They are not doing tasks. They are literally executing their calendar. That is what most people spend their day doing is executing their calendar. And, and are they really, when they look at their calendar, are they proud of what they did? Probably not. I think most people's calendar is executing them. And yeah, killing the life there. out of them, you know, and it's, we become a slave to it. Smart. I would say in my own life, and I, I'm going to ask you about the golden rule here in a second, because I love the new golden rule you talked about. But I really feel like just for people, it's not easy to get to simple. It takes a lot of work to get to simple. You know, you got to be really, really determined to get to simple. It's that. It's not, it's not. I would never say it's easy to get to simple, but it's also, there are ways to do it. It's just that you have to be disciplined. That's what it is. That's really what it comes down to. So in the book, you mentioned the new golden rule. Talk about that. I think it's a great concept and it fits nicely into the flow of our conversation today. Uh, yeah, you're talking about uh, spend your time the way you'd want other people's to spend your time. Yeah. So what's interesting about it is um, I also say simplicity is an ethical issue. I mean, I literally am waiting for the first person to sue their company and win for, um, you know, the company just wasting their time. Because it's it has a value to I know we laugh, but it's like, huh, you really start to think about that. Like you wasted my time. I could have I could have met my goals, but you wasted my time. Right. So time is a commodity. So you really want to think about uh, the value of people's time. And so I want to when I look at my team, I talk about everything. I said, is this valuable work? And we have a discussion around defining what valuable work is so they can say yes or no to things. That if they feel like their time is being wasted, that they know that they're the ones who have to come back and tell me, okay, so we have to reprioritize. And I actually, I do a kill a stupid rule session with them every quarter to say, where do you feel that your biggest time sucks are, where your time is being wasted, where you are doing things that are completely unnecessary. And if you had, if you could right now, you would actually kill those things. And so that gives them a structured forum to get rid of things where they feel that their time um, is not being spent in the ways that it should be. Spend your time in the way you'd want others to spend your time, right? It's, it's, it's a brilliant concept. And, you know, when you think about it, the truth of the matter is this. Many of us live lives that are slightly overwhelmed, slightly distracted. But the truth of the matter is when we do assessments with people of their calendar, and my first mentor, his name is Dr. Alex Lackey. His brand was the most organized man in America. He's a brilliant guy. He was in the who's who, was the most organized man in America. And he took me under his wing. And he had me break down my calendar. And, you know, of course, this is 35 years ago. So I had the old journal for my mm-hmm. data entry and, you know, whatever else. So here's my journal. He comes along and he says, I want you to, every 15 minutes, set a little alarm on your watch. I had a digital <laughs> watch and write down what you did for the previous 15 minutes. Now, because I was aware of this, I put my best foot forward. Because I was going to share this with somebody, I put my best foot forward. When I shared that with him, 
I was embarrassed. See? I was embarrassed of how much time I was wasting. Okay, so this is interesting. So we do this exercise with people to say, you know, they'll say they're so overwhelmed. And so we'll say, make a T-chart. And on the left-hand side of the T-chart, write tasks. And on the right-hand side of the T-chart, you're going to write uh, work I wish I was doing. So what you do is you have them write down on the on the left-hand side of the tasks, write down 20 tasks that you typically spend your day or your week doing. And they write them all down. And then they have to circle the tasks that they think are valuable. And they can define what that means. And what they find is they don't circle many things. And the reason why you don't do this as a group exercise is exactly what you just said. Because if you say to people, oh, do you want to share what's on your list and is valuable? Of course, in front of the group, they're going to say, well, everything is so valuable. <laughs> right. I'm just so valuable, right? I'm just so amazing. About but then when they do it as an individual exercise, it's an aha moment because there's a lot of ego attached to our time. We like to say that everything we do is valuable. We like to bitch about things that aren't valuable. So, yeah. Oh, woe is me. We come home. Oh, honey, how'd it go? Well, oh. this and other, whatever else. But I, I don't mention the 12 minutes I got caught up watching ESPN on the TV in the, in the office. So. <laughs> we would never admit that. We would never, never admit, admit that. It. No. So as we close it down here a little bit, you know, I'm always about the application. And let's say somebody wants to start the process of simplicity. They realize they, they feel overwhelmed or they have too much on their plate. They listen to this and, oh, that's great. It works for Pfizer and so on and so forth. But I got me and two others. How does somebody start a simplicity plan? How do they begin? What's the first step to take to actually get on the road to simplicity, Lisa? Let me tell you from a, from a, a program perspective, and I'm going to tell you an immediate perspective. The first thing they have to do is assess where the complexity is happening. And, you know, there's, di we do diagnostics on this, et cetera, because you can't just go to people and say, you guys get rid of things because guess what? They will, and it'll be chaos. So you want to focus on specific areas to tackle at a time. Like, is it meetings? Is it emails? Is it processes? What is it? So assess it and then align on which ones are the biggest priorities. So you can tackle one thing at a time and people can feel progress and start to see the difference of getting time back, right? So assessing and aligning and then prioritizing. The big thing I would say is what people, how they fail when they do a simplicity effort is that they focus on things that are in their sphere of influence versus their sphere of control. And what I mean by that is that um, what we want to do is start to, to look at the everyday work first, the things in our individual sphere of control, the things that we do with our teams, our small teams every day, and then we'll start to expand out to the sphere of influence, the things we do with other groups. So the way that we start to tell leaders within teams, right, focus on your team first, like don't change big IT processes, change things in your team, is we tell them, first of all, um, do a stop it session. And what that means is ask people, for example, if you're doing your strategic plan or a project, list all the things, of course, that you're going to commit to doing. But then they also have to provide a list of all the things that they commit to stop doing. And that's a very good practice for people, especially in strategic planning, because those those things usually become the excuses of why things couldn't happen. The second thing is I would do kill a stupid rule with your team. I would get them in a room and I would ask them to identify all the, the rules that they would love to kill or change and why. And those are time sucks. Those are all kinds of things. The reason to do that is it gives people a forum to talk about all the things that they think hold them back and to show them that the majority of the things that they probably come up with are not rules. They are annoyances, assumptions, things that we have in our sphere of control and start to kill them right away. And I'll, I'll tell you when we, we do that with, I can 
name a dozen companies around the world, USA, a Pfizer, et cetera. We did this once with Accenture and we did kill a stupid rule. And it became so popular that they created a rule graveyard and they made little tombs, <laughs> little tombstones and every rule they killed, they made a tombstone for it and put it in a graveyard. And the reason why is they wanted to visibly show people all the things that they could kill and how silly they were and why had they spent time on it in the first place. So there's, those are signals that we can send to make it. Stick. I love it. Look, I, I mean, I, I'm the founder of the company and there's people who've joined me over the years and it's O'Brien wanted this. So it becomes the untouchable thing. And so I, well, I that's go, the joke. And I say, I, that's what I say. I say, hey, just so you know, 22 years ago, while we were still using fax machines, that was that an was important a good rule. rule. Now it does. And I, by the way, I've not been aware of it for 15 years. So you guys are walking around with this banner like we've got to die on the post. I didn't even know we were still doing this, you know. Brian, that's the whole thing, which is, you know what? We, we do not challenge the way that we work. And so there are lots of good rules, but maybe they've outlived their time. And frankly, rules are like weeds. They grow back. So we've got to keep on top of it. I love it. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, if you want the rest of the story, there's two ways to get it. Why Simple Wins, a wonderful, it's a short read. It's a powerful read, beautifully put together. Love this book. And also come see Lisa in person at our leadership conference, and it will be awesome. Lisa, I'm going to ask you five questions I've asked every celebrity in person we've ever had on the show, and it's just five rapid-fire questions. You're a New Yorker, so you'll love it this way. Number one, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, my God. Uh, well, do what you love. Where'd you get that? Oh my gosh, I got it from my mom. Ah, love moms. Love moms. <laughs> you'll be hearing from mine in a minute. Oh, good. I can't what wait. one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Oh, my God. Um, let's see. That's a really good one. I wish that I was a singer. You know, it always gets down to the performing eye. I'd say it's a 90% sing, sing or perform or play an instrument. It's always there. What one book has been most instrumental in your life? Oh, my gosh. Um, there was a book that was really good that was called There Are No Children Here. And that was about, um, it's a guy named Alex Koltlewitz. And it, in my previous life, I was going to be a social worker oh. and I was going to change the world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I went into advertising and marketing instead. So they're same thing. But what was really interesting, it was really, really looked at human behavior and how important it is to treat people like humans uh, to be successful. And that really drives a lot of my business. Well, the good news is you're, you're helping a lot of adults nowadays, and you're still doing social work, in my opinion, <laughs> that's on the social scale. If there's one movie that's on and you're flicking through the channel and you're just vegging out, what's the one movie you watch over and over again? Oh, Gladiator. I love it. Come on. I love now, what is it about that that does it for you? Oh, I love a comeback story. I just think it's so fantastic and like the love triumph it. of the good. So I love that book. Love, love it. it. Love it. Yeah, that was a classic. And then lastly, what does a good life mean to Lisa Bedell? Oh, a good life to me, I, I just think, is being able to spend time with my family and my children. That So I'm able to create a life that allows me to have that flexibility. So I feel like I give back, but I'm able to be with my kids. And as an entrepreneur, small business owner yourself, you're helping businesses all over the world and also carving out a life for yourself and your family, just like our audience. And we greatly appreciate you. We love uh, your work. And uh, it's been a treat having you on here today. The book is fabulous. Thank you, Brian. And uh, you're an awesome presenter. And as a public speaker, I don't throw that compliment <laughs> out often, but I personally uh, pursued you to come and oh. speak at our leadership conference. So we're delighted to have you. So thanks so much for joining us today. Brian, thank you. It's a good life. So thank you. It is a good life. It is a good life. And we're going to finish off with a good life today. And someone who's been teaching me about simple since the day I arrived on this planet, it's my 92-year-old mother, Therese Buffini. 
all the way from Dublin. She's got a great little Irish blessing for us all today. Thanks again for joining us and listen to Mom. May the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.